بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما آمين يا أرحم الراحمين أما بعد الحمد لله This is lesson 51 in the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and this is the second session covering the Medinan period. Last week we spoke about the Prophet's stay in Quba with Banu Amr bin Auf. We also talked about his departure from Quba to Medina on that Friday morning and his delivering the very first khutbah there in addressing the Ummah. And we looked at the khutbah and some of the themes of the khutbah as the very first prophetic Jumu'ah delivered there. So we're looking now at how the Prophet ﷺ entered Medina proper. And I say this term Medina proper because we know that now Quba is part of the greater city of Medina today. And back then it wasn't, it was outside of Medina, but it was not independent of Medina. It's on the outskirts. So the entering into Medina proper was on that Jumu'ah. So after Jumu'ah, the Prophet ﷺ made his way to Medina. And when news of his arrival into the city spread, the Ansar went out in throngs to receive him. In the hadith of Abu bin Azib, he mentions 500 of the Ansar came out to greet him. And so it was on a Jumu'ah, after Jumu'ah, the Prophet ﷺ entered the city of light, Al-Madinatul Munawwara, for whose light he was the mustar, he was the source. Going to that hadith of Al-Bara bin Azib radiallahu anhu, he relates the experience of the Ansar when they first received Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He says in this hadith recorded by Imam Muslim, I saw the Ansar all dressed up and coming out. So they went and put on their finest attire to receive the greatest figure. He says over 500 men came outside, all of whom were armed and dressed to accompany the Prophet sallallahu and this is a bit foreign to our culture today, the idea of dressing up to receive someone and arming oneself. But in this society, that was a part of what you're wearing when you receive such figures of great importance, whom you also want to defend with your very life. So they were armed and wearing their very best clothing. He says, the women climbed up onto the houses, and these are flat houses with flat roofs without any kind of uh, fencing or area. So it's just a flat roof. They're on the top of these houses. He says the children thronged around to see. So it was a, a lot of hustle and bustle. He says the Prophet ﷺ was surrounded by hundreds of people, all believers in him. Now we remember that before he arrived, every single morning they're going out to the outskirts of Medina. One narration mentions them climbing the date palm trees, getting up as high as they can to look out as far as they can to see the impending arrival of the, of the Prophet ﷺ. And they're going day after day, returning when it's 11 or 12 o'clock and high noon and too hot for them to remain outside whereupon they would climb down the trees and go back to the city. So now word has reached them that he's arrived not only in Quba, but also in entering the city of the Prophet ﷺ, the Medina al Munawwara. So when he reached them at last, we know that they were so overjoyed to finally receive him. The common narrative in the seerah that we see in movies like The Message or that we hear in the common narratives, we, we get this scene 
of the people receiving the Prophet and breaking out into song. And we often, like the movie, we get the image of our, in our heads of people receiving him with However, as a song, an ode, was not sung on the day of the Prophet's arrival. That was actually sung much later when he was returning from Tabuk. Does that mean that they weren't there to receive him in song? Yeah, because there are some people who question that narration. They say, well, the narration of there's some question about the Sanad, and even if the Sanad is sound, it happened in Tabuk, but we don't really you know, propagate it. It's as if they don't believe that people broke out in song to receive the Prophet They broke out in song when he arrived after the Hijrah, and they broke out in song when he came back from Tabuk, which was a very long and difficult journey. We have narrations which describe some of those songs. We have the narration of the young girls, the Banat of Banu Najjar. Some of the young girls of Banu Najjar were singing songs in celebration of his arrival. And they were out there with the crowds beating the duff and singing the song. One of the words in the ode was, نَحْنُ بَنَاتُ بَنِي النَّجَّارِ يَا حَبَّذَا مُحَمَّدْ مِنْ جَارِ They would say, we are girls from Banu Najjar. How wonderful that Muhammad will be our neighbor. So undoubtedly he was received in the most joyous reception. Adults, men and women and children with children beating the duff and singing song. In the narration about these girls of Banu Najjar, and we remember that Banu Najjar are his relatives, his kin. They're singing the song. And the Prophet ﷺ hears them and he goes over to them. It's these young girls. And he says to them, and this is such a beautiful narration. He goes to these young girls and he says, Do you love me? And they said, Yes, Wallahi ya Rasulullah, we love you indeed. And then the Prophet وسلم, says to these young girls, Allahu ya'lamu anna qalbi yuhibbukunna. Allah knows in my heart that I love you by Allah. This is the hadith recorded by Imam al-Bayhaqi and Dala'il al-Nubuwa, showing you not just how he was received by others, but how he received them, how he responded to that expression of love and joy in the singing of song. So he received them like this. Men and women were standing. Some of them were on tops of the houses just to get a glimpse of the Prophet ﷺ. Young children, young girls, young boys, servants, everyone's running through the streets. One of the narrations says that the young boys were running through the streets saying, Allahu Akbar, the Messenger of Allah has come, Muhammad has arrived. So Bara ibn Azib, who's reflecting on this experience of the first arrival to Medina. He says, Wallahi, by Allah, never did I see the people of Medina as happy as I saw them at the arrival of the Messenger of Allah So it's the happiest day of their lives. And this sentiment was echoed later by Sayyiduna Anas radiallahu anhu. At this time, he's a young boy. But later in his life, he would reflect on that experience of them receiving Rasulullah And this is in the famous hadith of Anas, recorded by Imam Tirmidhi in his Shema'il. He says that on the day the Messenger of Allah entered Medina, everything was lit up in light. And on the day of his passing, things went dark. He's reflecting and contrasting between the arrival and his passing. But the shahid here is he says that when he entered, it's everything lit up. Everything lit up. It was a new page. There was a great deal of hope and expectation in the air of a new society, a, a new force of khair for humanity. And so it's at this point that we say, Yathrib was no longer Yathrib. 
it is now Medina. Medinatu Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Al-Madinatu al-Munawwara. We don't call it Yathrib anymore. And from this reception, we learn a very important lesson. The lesson is what it means to have love and devotion to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and how that love and devotion consists of more than just obeying his commands. Obeying the commands of the Prophet ﷺ is from the implications of love. Min lawazim al-mahabba. But there has to be an impetus. There has to be an internal drive that leads one to that obedience. And that is love and devotion to the Prophet ﷺ. And we see this in how they receive the Prophet ﷺ. In his work on seerah, Fiqh-Sira, uh, Shaykh Muhammad Sa'id Ramadan al-Buti, rahimahullah, he reflects on this and he says very beautifully that those who believe that love for the Messenger of Allah وسلم, means nothing but obeying him and following his example are an error. They are an error. Such people, he says, fail to realize that in order to emulate someone, we must have some motive for doing so. Why are you emulating them? Why are you obeying them? And that apart from heartfelt love that takes possession of one's emotions, such motivation will be lacking. So we learn, as we said in the seerah, not just about the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his own history, but we also learn what it means to have devotion. And we learn that from the Sahaba. They transmitted to us not just what the Prophet ﷺ said and did and approved of. They also transmitted to the second generation how they express adab and respect and love. And we are forever indebted to them for that. Because they could have just conveyed exactly what was said and done and approved of by the Prophet ﷺ. But with those alone, would we know through examples what it means to express love and adab? They recorded so many narrations that speak about just what they did around him and how they behaved. And for, for that, we are eternally indebted to them. So this is the Medinan period and now the Prophet ﷺ has entered Medina and we don't call it Yathrib anymore. It is formerly known as Yathrib and the only time we refer to it as Yathrib is when we're looking at the historical timeline and how it was referred to in the history. Yathrib as we know before it became Medina was a city at that time, a hundred or so years old, and it was an agricultural city. It was located in an area surrounded by ancient volcanic rock. And it had a large underground water supply, which made it a very fertile area. If you think about these two things combined, uh, volcanic rock and volcanic soil and underground sources of water, this means you have a fertile area which means it will become an agricultural town. Now in Bukhari, we find a hadith in which the Prophet wasallam says, أُمِرْتُ بِقَرْيَةٍ تَأْكُلُ الْقُرَى يَقُولُونَ يَثْرِبْ وَهِيَ الْمَدِينَةِ He says, I have been commanded to immigrate to a city that shall devour all other cities. They call it Yathrib, but it is Medina. So this hadith teaches us very clearly that from this point forward, the city is known as Medina and we're not actually allowed to refer to it as Yathrib. When you look in the Quran, you see that the only time Medina is called Yathrib is when Allah Ta'ala is mentioning the words of the Munafiqeen, the hypocrites. They are the ones who refuse to accept this new name. 
they would refer to it as yathrib, they would not give that up. So we find in the Qur'an where Allah is quoting the munafiqeen, saying, addressing, يَا أَهْلَ يَثْرِبْ لَا مُقَامَ لَكُمْ الْيَوْمْ فَارْجِعُوا You have no position, you have no position, uh, so go back to your, your city, O people of Yathrib. But we don't call it that. What is the meaning of Yathrib? And what is the meaning of Medina? And why was the change made? Now the ulama differ about the exact meaning of Yathrib. Some of them say that Yathrib comes from the word Tathrib. Uh, in Arabic, Tathrib means blame or censure or reproach. And that's a Quranic word. We find that in Surah Yusuf, where Sayyidina Yusuf السلام, says to the brothers after they reconcile, what does he say to them? There's no tathrib on you today. There's no blame, right? And that's exactly what Rasulullah said to Quraysh, the chiefs of Quraysh, after the conquest of Mecca. He said to them, I say to you, as Yusuf said to his brothers. So tathrib is, they say, one of the possible derivations of yathrib. Some of them say it comes from tharb, and tharb is... Uh, basically evil, bad, ennoble. So the name Yathrib is not a positive name. And it was changed by the Prophet ﷺ. And the Muslims accepted this name change. And the only ones who refused to accept it and who kept referring to it as Yathrib were the hypocrites. And Allah mentions this. وَإِذْ قَالَتْ طَائِفَةٌ مِّنْهُمْ يَا أَهْلَ يَثْرِبْ لَا مُقَامَ لَكُمْ فَرْجِعُوا when a faction of them said, O oh, people of Yathrib, there's no station, there's no stability for you, so go back home. And this is an obvious sign of hypocrisy. How so? Because what it is, they are not pleased with the decision of the Prophet ﷺ to change the name. But the believers accepted the name change, and they saw that it was a name change taking a name that has negative connotations and giving it a name that has positive connotations and meanings. So the Prophet ﷺ mentions this issue of people referring to Medina as Yathrib. And he says in one hadith that whoever calls Medina Yathrib should seek Allah's forgiveness. Who's going to call Medina Yathrib? And who needs to seek forgiveness? It appears that the Prophet ﷺ is speaking to the Ansar. And these Ansar grew up in Medina. So all of their life they are referring to this place as Yathrib. Now it's Medina. If they have a slip of the tongue, if they have a lapse in judgment, and they call it by its old name that they grew up hearing, the instruction is for them to seek Allah's forgiveness. So this is not done purposely, it's not done to object to the name change. It's because of the habit of calling it by that name, because they grew up there. They should seek forgiveness. So we have Yathrib being changed to Medina. What does Medina mean? In the Arabic language, the name Medina comes from Dana, right? Dana Yadinu, right? Which is there's a lot of meanings, but you have the meaning of debt, you have the meaning of duty, you have the meaning of commitment, you have the meaning of uh, judgment, you have the meaning of accounting, you have the meaning of, of basically a way or a path. Right? The word deen comes from deen. Malik yawmid deen, yawmid deen. Right? One of Allah's names is Ad-Dayyan, the, the judge, the ultimate judge. So judgment, uh, uprightness, right living, debt, life transaction, all of these meanings are within embedded in that root. So Medina translates directly as the city, but the proper meaning is the city that embodies what it means to have civilization, 
real civilization with a capital C based upon the oneness of Allah Ta'ala and a commitment to live an upright life. So that's really what it means. Uh, so it is the place of civilization. It is the center of true civic life informed by guidance and revelation. It is the city in which the deen is lived and embodied and expressed in its most perfect way. So Medina, it means the place where deen as a society and civilization is expressed in its most perfect way, in dunya, an imperfect world. So those are just some of the meanings of the name Medina. But we call it city. And the proper name of Medina is Madinatu Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the city of the Messenger of Allah. We also call it Al-Madinatu Al-Munawwara, the, the enlightened city, the city of enlightenment. Because as Sayyidina Anas says, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam entered Medina, Everything was lit up in light. So this is what is said about the meaning of the name Medina. And what we find in Arabic, in the Arabic language and in Arabic culture and in other cultures is that things that are significant, things that have a lot of importance are given a lot of names. So how many words do they have in your language for horse? One, two. Two? There's no more? No. That's interesting. I mean, it, it, it depends. Like for, like for female, male. And but like the qualities of horses, do they have lots of words to describe them? Just two. Two? So the Arabs have about 70. So there's lots of words for horse. Lots of words for sword, lots of words for uh, a lion, lots of words for love. There's about 60 words for love. There's lots of words for things in the desert, things that around which desert life is centered, things that are essential to living in that environment. And there's lots of words for dog as well. Now you find in the Quran this same reality is reflected and you have lots and lots of names for the day of judgment different names for the quran the final revelation to humanity uh, so the plurality of names and descriptors indicate the importance of that thing and this is why it should come as no surprise that the center of islamic civilization the city of the prophet وسلم, also has many many names and when we go into our heritage we find over 100 names given to the city of the prophet and as usual these names are descriptors they're describing different aspects or features of the city of the prophet of those hundred names we have two or three that are coming directly from the prophet we have a couple of them that are uh, indirectly alluded to in the Qur'an. And then we have others that are indirectly derived from the qualities of the city of the Prophet ﷺ. From the words of the Prophet ﷺ, we know Medina, number one. We also know uh, Taba, which is pure, sacred, and Tayyiba, which also is pure. And when we look at the other names, we find names like Adar, the abode, the abode, Adar. And we also find names like Iman, the embodiment of faith itself. So these are two, you could combine them into one, Adar wal Iman. And that's coming from a verse of Quran. This is coming from Surah Al-Hashr. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالَّذِينَ تَبَوَّوْا دَارَ وَالْإِيمَانَ مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ يُحِبُّونَ مَنْ هَاجَرَ إِلَيْهِمْ Those who take up abode and reside in the dar and iman, they love those who migrate to them. So this means that Medina is also called the abode with a capital A. 
and the embodiment of Iman itself. Other names include Darul Hijra, the abode of migration. And that's a very old name and that's still used very commonly and is very common in the literature. The nickname or the descriptor given to Imam Malik was Imam Dar al-Hijra, the Imam of the abode of migration, because he was the Imam of Ahlul Medina. It's also called Ardul Hijra, the, the land of migration, and Ardullah, the land of Allah. It's also called Aqilatul Buldan or Aqilatul Qura, that which consumes the other towns and villages. It expands and reigns supreme over every other city and town, every other village, because it is the most important and the central most. Now we'll look at how that compares to Mecca soon, but that's one of the names. Other names include Barra, pious or righteous. Balad al-Rasul. Balad al-Rasul means the, the land of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Bayt al-Rasul, the house of the Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's called Jabira or Jabbara which means it's overpowering, overwhelming, but also mending, because the name Jabbar can mean uh, overpowering, conquering, dominating, but it also means to repair and mend. A, a bandage, for example, is a Jabira, right? A cast could be called a Jabira because it mends a broken bone. So it mends the broken hearts. If you ever have a broken heart, just go to Medina. It'll get repaired, inshaAllah. Other names include Al-Jannatul Hasina, the securing garden or the garden citadel. Hubab or Habiba, the beloved. Or Haram uh, Rasul, the sacred precinct of the Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Darul Abrar or Darul Akhyar the abode of the pious, the abode of the choice elect, because it is the abode of the muhajirun and the ansar. Ad-Dar al-Hasina, the fortified citadel, is also called Fadiha. Fadiha means that thing that it exposes you, because it exposes the hypocrites. Just living there exposes them and it pushes them out. It is also called Qalbul Iman, the heart of faith. Madkhalu Sidq, the entry point of truthfulness. That's coming from the Quran. It's also called Khaira, the good. Sayyidul Buldan, Shafia, Asima, the healing city, the protected city, the master of all cities. These are just some of the names we find from the Sahaba and the Tabi'un and the Salaf and later generations, descriptors of this most beautiful of cities. And when we look at the city of Medina, we see that it has virtues that other cities don't have. And these virtues are spoken about by the Prophet ﷺ. Entire books have been written in our tradition just on Fadailul Medina, the virtues of Medina, Wa and its people, entire books. So we can look at a few of these narrations just to get a sense of the virtue inherent within this blessed city that is the abode of Hijrah and what is the land in which the Messenger وسلم, was chosen to settle in and be buried in. We have lots of examples where the Prophet ﷺ made dua from Medina and the people of Medina. He would make dua that Allah blesses Medina. Allahumma badik lana fi Medinatina. O Allah bless us in our Medina. Our Medina. He would also make dua that Allah put love in their hearts for Medina as they had love in their hearts for Mecca, for the Muhajirun. Asking Allah to put love in their hearts for this new city as they had love for their hometown of Mecca. Other narrations 
show him making dua, asking Allah Ta'ala to bless the, the sa'a and the mud, the weights and the measures used in Medina. So the standard measure, the sa'a and the mud recognized in Medina, the Prophet ﷺ made dua that Allah bless them in those weights and measurements. So what that is, is him making dua, asking Allah to bless the commerce and the provision and the way in which business is conducted in the city of Medina. And you see indeed within our fiqh tradition, the sa'a and the mud, these units of measurement of Medina are recognized as standards, right? And they have equivalents. So this is also showing you this great concern he had for praying for the people of Medina and the weights and measures of Medina and so on. We also know from the virtues of Medina is that it is indeed this husn, this citadel, this protected fortress in that the Dajjal, the Antichrist, would not be able to enter it. The Prophet ﷺ mentions in the hadith that the Dajjal will try to enter Medina, but he'll be unable to because it will be guarded on the outskirts by two massive angels. In one narration, he says that if you get word of the fitna of Dajjal and you're able to go to Medina, go to Medina because you'll be protected from the fitna of Dajjal if you get inside of Medina. We also know from the virtues of Medina that the Prophet ﷺ designated it as a protected sanctuary. What is that in Arabic, protected sanctuary? Haram. haram. We know that Mecca is a haram, right? You have the haram sharif. You have a certain boundary points and the Prophet ﷺ also decreed that Medina be made into a haram, a protected area where certain things that are ordinarily halal are forbidden, uh, and that things that are ordinarily forbidden are even more grievous in sin when they're done inside of Medina. He said in a dua, Allahumma inna Ibrahima harrama Mecca, faja'alaha haraman, wa inni harramtul Madinata harama. He says, Oh Allah, indeed Ibrahim made Mecca into a haram, a protected sanctuary. And he made it into this, and I declare Medina as a protected sanctuary as well. Among the virtues of Medina is that it is better as a choice of uh, residence for people, if they but knew. If you have a portfolio of properties to choose from. Let's say you have it like that financially, and you're, you have a bunch of portfolios looking at different properties you can choose from to purchase. You got the Malibu beachside property. You have a nice house in Hawaii somewhere, you know, something in Cancun, all sorts of nice properties. And then one says you have uh, a basic two-bedroom apartment in Medina. Well, that's always going to be the superior property to choose from if you know what's really valuable. Because the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith, Medina is better for them if they only knew. He also said that no one leaves Medina not wanting to live there except that Allah will replace him with someone better. And anyone who is patient with the difficulties in Medina, he says, I will be a intercessor for him on the Day of Judgment. So it's at this point when you hear these things that you should, you should consider making a niyyah. That if Allah ever facilitated for you to make that move, to go live in Medina, if you feel that you could do it and show respect, if you don't feel you can live up to that, Fair enough, because it, is, it, is, it requires a standard of adab. But if you feel that you can do that, 
you should want to live there. You should make a niyyah that if Allah opens those doors, I would move there. I would make that my abode and I would hope to die there. And we know from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad that Medina is the best place for a believer to die in. So a believer should long to die in Medina, even if it seems far-fetched, like, you know, what are the chances of me living here, living out my life and retiring here, but also dying and being buried in Medina? What are the chances? But nothing is impossible for Allah Ta'ala. You can make the niyyah, right? The Prophet Sallallahu said, whoever among you is able to die in Medina, let him do so, because I will intercede for him on the day of judgment. One of the companions, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, he wanted to unite between two virtues. He wanted the reward of shahada, martyrdom, as well as dying in Medina. But when you think about that, it seems very difficult to join those two together. Because during his time as the Khalifa, Medina is an abode of relative peace and stability. There were conflicts and there were ghazawat and there were jihad, but these were mostly going on in the eastern and northern areas as the Islamic civilization was expanding during his reign. But he made dua for that, that he have shahada and dying in Medina. And what did Allah give him? He was assassinated in Medina. And so he got exactly what he wished for. There was an older woman living here in Dearborn or Detroit. And she was an older lady. She wasn't very well off financially, neither her nor her children. And she longed to go to Medina and die in Medina, even though it had been so many years since she had gone there for ziyara. But that was her want, her desire. And it so happened that the opportunity arose for her to go to Medina. And she goes to Medina after all of these years. And during her trip, making the ziyara to the Prophet ﷺ, there in Medina, she passes away. And she receives her janazah and is buried in Al-Baqir. What she was praying for all these years. To the outside observer, they would say, may Allah reward you for your eagerness, but you're an older woman and you're living in North America and you don't have the financial means to just move to Medina and live there. So statistically, your chances of dying in America are infinitely greater than you dying in Medina. But that one trip was all it took. And she passed away and got exactly what she prayed for. No soul knows in what land it will die. So we should all make a niya and, and a desire to die in Medina. Right? Think about it. Who is your companion in the graveyard? To your left and to your right and in front of you and behind you in the cemetery, you have Sahaba, Ahlul Bayt, Ulama, Awliya, Sulaha, Abrar, all sorts of people there of good. So this is among the virtues of Medina as well. Lastly, Medina is seen by many as the most superior place, not just in the world, but in the entire cone, the entire cosmos, the entire created universe. That is the position of many ulama. The Prophet sallallahu made dua, Allahumma ij'al bil madinati dhi'fay ma ja'alta bi Mecca min al-barakah. O oh Allah, make the blessings of Medina twice as much as the blessings you made for Mecca. Some of the ulama understand from this hadith that Medina has twice the virtue of Mecca. Right? And there's different opinions and different scholars try to reconcile 
what that means in light of the fact that prayers offered in Mecca, in the Haram, are worthy of greater reward. They're more rewarded than Salat offered in Medina. So of course the Hadith mentions that if you offer prayer in Mecca, it is equivalent to 100,000 prayers offered elsewhere. And if you offer prayer in Medina, it's equivalent to 1,000 offered elsewhere. That, however, does not end the discussion about the relative superiority between Mecca and Medina. And it's not something that people should debate. It's not a topic where people should go back and forth and butt heads trying to argue over which is superior, Mecca or Medina. However, there is a, a not insubstantial number of scholars in our history who were of the position that Medina is superior to Mecca, even though the reward for the Salat in the Haram has a, is greater than Salat in Medina. They still believe that Medina was superior to Mecca and that it is the most superior physical location in the entire universe. This was famously the position of Imam Madik rahimahullah. And the argument is actually quite simple. Their argument is, goes like this. The best of creation is buried in Medina. Therefore, Medina is the best place in creation. Because wherever he is, that physical location will be the best physical location. That's their argument. The best of creation is buried in Medina. Therefore, it is the best physical location. That's their argument. One of the famous imams in the Hanbali school, Imam Ibn Aqil al-Hanbali, the one of the great early Hanabila, he was once asked about this, about the relative preference that some people give to uh, the grave of the Prophet ﷺ over the Kaaba itself. So now we're not talking Mecca and Medina anymore. We're talking about uh, Al-Qabr al-Sharif and Al-Kaaba al-Musharrafa, the grave of the Prophet ﷺ and the Kaaba itself. He's asked about people who are discussing which one of these is superior. This is his answer. He says, if you merely intend by the grave, the, the grave itself, you know, so the, the actual earth, then the Kaaba is superior to the earth, undoubtedly. The Kaaba is superior to the actual ground or the structure of the grave itself, very clearly. But if you intend by the grave, the one in the grave, Rasulullah then no. He says, no. Wallahi, neither the arsh, nor the hamalatul arsh, nor jannatu adn, none of these things, or even anything else in the cone, the cosmos, can equal in superiority or value the Prophet ﷺ. Because he in the grave is one who, if weighed against this life and the next, his value would outweigh them all. So when people hear this kind of kalam, they should understand that this is not, this is not ghulu, this is not uh, this is not saying things that go beyond the bounds. This is firm within our Sunni tradition to say that uh, Medina is superior or to say that uh, the Prophet is superior to these other things in creation because they're all makhluq, right? The Arsh is makhluq, the Kaaba is makhluq, right? Jannah is makhluq. So he is superior to all created things. Therefore, the conclusion is Medina would be superior. So we don't fight over this, but that is the position of a number of ulama. Someone once asked a scholar to describe something very beautiful about Jannah. If you were to summarize all of the beauties of Jannah in a very brief statement, what would you say? Fiha Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That's it. Fiha Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
Sheikh Abdul Aziz al-Dabbaq, rahimahullah, he once said that Jannah, because Jannah is an embodied thing. It, it, it has sentience because it speaks. We have hadith which narrate conversations between Jannah and Jahannam. And so Jannah has sentience, it has kalam that we don't necessarily understand. It has emotions and longing. He says that Jannah longs for the Prophet ﷺ. It longs to receive him and it longs to receive his followers. He says that if it was in the ability of Jannah, Jannah would move physically to be close to the Prophet ﷺ. But it is the will of Allah that Jannah remains among the ghaybiyat so that we have the moral duty of iman bil ghaib, iman in the unseen. Otherwise, where would you go? You know, think about it. You know, if you have a choice to go somewhere, that's why, if you think about it, like who is the greatest among the tabi'un? Who knows? There's different names, right? Sayyidul Tabi'een, right? But in terms of rank, not necessarily in knowledge, but in terms of spiritual devotion and just sheer sacrifice. One of the greatest of the Tabi'un was Uwais al-Qarni. Uwais al-Qarni. Why? Because he actually lived in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu And he had the opportunity to go to Medina, but he had to make an incredible sacrifice. He had to take care of his mother. So he put things in priority. He knows Rasulullah would want me to stay here and take care of my mother. But he wanted nothing more than to go to Medina to be a Sahabi, to, to, to gaze and be in the presence of Rasulullah But he sacrificed that in order to take care of his mother, right? And so when the Prophet ﷺ spoke about him, he said, if you encounter this man, ask, Allah, ask him to make dua for you, that Allah forgives you. And with Sayyidina Umar who finally met him, and he came up from Yemen, he asked him to make dua for him. Anyhow, it's, these are some of the virtues of Medina, right? This is just a drop in the bucket about the virtues of Medina. It is sufficient to say that uh, its virtue lies in the fact that it is Medina to Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's it. So Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam has now entered this city of light with an entourage of five hundred of the companions around him. It's very obvious that if given the chance, all of them would have accepted the honor of hosting him in their house. There's not a single one among them who would decline that. There's not a single one among them who would not want to take the Prophet ﷺ into their home. And the Prophet ﷺ could have chosen to stay with any one person or any one family, but he didn't. Instead, he left the matter to Allah Ta'ala. Because imagine how a person might feel if they offer their home to the Prophet after him entering the city for the very first time with such joy, and he says to them, no. He did not want to say no. So instead of saying yes to this one and no to that one out of the 500 plus people, he left the matter to Allah Ta'ala and when they offered, he said, my camel is ma'mura. My camel is under divine command. He left the matter to Allah. So we know in the famous narration that he had the camel roam and wherever the camel sat down, he would disembark and that would be the area where he would be residing. So no one's feelings are going to get hurt. And he goes on this camel 
that's under command and is made to roam freely. And he understood that wherever the camel descends, this is going to be the place where the masjid is built. When you go to the hadith narrations describing his entry into Medina, and you read this narration, you see that he's telling them that the camel is commanded to roam, and wherever it settles, he says this is where the masjid will be built. You notice he doesn't say, that's where I'm going to stay. <laughs> so the first priority wasn't even his own housing where he's going to stay. The first priority was selecting the site for the masjid. And so he roams the camel. And the camel sits on this area. It was a small flat area where the people would take their date stalks and lay them out to dry. Because remember, you have the rutab, you have the dates, and you want to leave them out for a while to get softer. They would choose this open area and put them out in rows. So the camel gets there in this open ground, and the Prophet ﷺ asks, Who among my kin lives closest to the camel? And who are the kin in Medina? Banu Najjar. So who among Banu Najjar lives closest to where the camel has settled? And a man replied, and his name is Khalid ibn Zayd. Khalid ibn Zayd, also known as Sayyiduna Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu. So Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu, he says, Ya Rasulullah, ana min Bani Najjar. I am from Banu Najjar. And the Prophet sallallahu decided to stay with him and his family. And when you look at the lineage between the Prophet sallallahu and Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, you see that there's, he's basically like the sixth cousin when you trace the lineage going back. So this is a distant relative, but a relative nonetheless. So Abu Ayyub, we could probably argue that he must have been the happiest person on that day because he received the honor well we could say to host the Prophet but from another perspective you could say that he received the honor of being hosted because he's receiving right he's receiving so much from this trip from this, uh, this stay of the Prophet now Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu was by all accounts uh, a relatively middle class man he wasn't ex incredibly wealthy but he wasn't among the poor either and this means that his house was actually quite suitable it was a two-story house there's an upstairs and a downstairs and so when he received the Prophet sallallahu and his belongings the Prophet sallallahu was staying in the downstairs area him along with his belongings. And Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and his wife were basically waiting on him hand and foot. She's preparing meals and he's serving him and bringing him water and tending to his needs. But they soon discovered one significant problem. As the Prophet sallallahu is in the house of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, he's downstairs which means that at night time, they're going to be sleeping upstairs. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu anhu, like the other Sahaba, were developing this sensitivity <coughs> and this higher, the higher demands of adab owed to the Prophet So one night he realized as he was trying to sleep upstairs. Him and his wife were upstairs, and he realized that they are over the Prophet ﷺ. When they stand up and walk around, their feet are going to be over him, even if it's separated by a ceiling and a, and a, and a roof. There's, the feet are over him. This disturbed him. So he told his wife, and then they went to the Prophet ﷺ, and he said, uh, 
Ya Rasulullah, by my mother and father, I find it repulsive, terrible that I should be above you and you below me. Please go upstairs and let us go downstairs to the lower part. The Prophet said, Ya Aba Ayyub, the lower part is more convenient for me and for those who come to visit me. So he's looking at the needs of others. So he remained in the lower part. And Abu Ayyub al-Ansari and his wife are remaining in the upstairs. But they still feel a certain way about this. He says one night, as they were upstairs, a water jug was tipped over. There's no electricity. You know, your water gets tipped over. The water jug is tipped over and it broke. And water began to pour. And myself and Um Ayyub, his wife, we took the only blanket that we had to try to cover that water spill and dry it so that it wouldn't drip down onto the Messenger of Allah Wasallam. And I went downstairs to the Messenger of Allah Wasallam, and I said, I refuse. I refuse to be above a ceiling that you are under. Basically, he's saying, this is it. I can't do this anymore. I, I cannot be in a place where my feet are above you. I can't be in a space where I'm over you like that. And so he kept asking the Prophet ﷺ until the Prophet ﷺ agreed and asked for his belongings to be moved upstairs. And they shifted. The Prophet ﷺ went upstairs and Abu Ayyub and his wife went downstairs. Uh, this is found in the somewhat lengthy narration in Ibn Hisham's Seerah. Uh, we find a similar version of this in Sahih Muslim. But this shows you the adab that they had at, in the beginning of this. But this is an adab, a reverence that is developing and strengthening among them, a sensitivity to how they carry themselves around the Prophet Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, if we were so honored to receive the Prophet in our own homes, number one, are our homes in a state where we would be happy to receive him and not embarrassed? number one. And number two, would we have the sensitivity? Would it even occur to us that our feet should never be above him with us on the second floor and him on the first floor? If that is the instinct that arises from the heart, that's a very beautiful sign. And in answer to the first question, if the answer is no, that's also a healthy response. Because there should be some shame. If the Prophet ﷺ was to knock on our door, ideally we would welcome him in and not have anything around or open that would be ashamed for him to see. But if we feel that that's not the case, there's at least an awareness that there's work to be done. So we see this adab in the story of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari. Next week, inshallah, we're going to discuss the first priority after entering Medina, which is building the masjid. We talk about the building of the masjid, how it was built. We'll talk about the minbar that was chosen. And we talk about the basic structure of the Medinan period. We'll look at the broad phases and look at how the earliest muhajirun made their way to Medina and how they experienced it. Because remember we said, we quoted the narration for the one who is patient with the difficulties they endure in Medina. I am their intercessor. That's because the early Muhajirun face a lot of initial difficulties, not just financially with the move, but also with their own health in adjusting to this new environment and climate. We'll talk about that inshallah, as well as the Ahlul Sufa and the early priorities in Medina besides building the masjid, such as the Pledge of Brotherhood, the Mu'akhat, and so on. 
والله ورسوله أعلم وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Sure. There are two questions. The first is, do you think the Hadith mentioned if somebody says Madura, yes, from my mistake, because they are used to, so they ask forgiveness from Allah. This is mentioned in the Hadith. Right. Yes. Yes. So these are among the virtues of Medina, that it's a protective fortress for believers who are who are there. The thing is, Medina also expels. So there is this other side to it. It's not for anyone to say, "Oh well, I'm living here, so I'm good." You don't know. Right? You could be alive when that happens in, in Medina and something happens whereby you end up having to leave. Because the Prophet ﷺ says in another hadith that Medina expels filth and impurity like the bellows blower expels the filth from the iron as it's being forged. This means that if there are bad people and corrupt people, hypocritical people in Medina, and there are, right? When that time comes, they'll be expelled. And Medina has a way of driving out those people anyway, even in ordinary times. It's not a place where super corrupt people can really live for a long time. Things happen where they just want to leave, right? And inshallah, Allah, give us death in Medina, burial in Medina. I mean. So when we talk about Medina, we... We define it as the hudud of the masjid now, right? Because that's the Medina, because we mentioned the masjid Aisha that's yeah. outside and the Qiba is outside. Right. So, so when you say when we live in Medina, you almost like, is that the broader spectrum of Medina? I mean, like. Yeah. Well, we would define it as whatever is encompassed in the limits established by the Prophet. Uh, the, the, the names of the mountain passes escape me, but you have those defined as. You know, between this valley and mountain pass and the other, the names escape me at the moment. But uh, this means that just as Quba today is a part of Greater Medina, but wasn't within that boundary. I mean, it's not it's not a it's not the Haram. If you were out there and you were hunting or doing whatever, it doesn't have the same consequence as if you were doing it inside of the city limits. Even if today it's considered a part of the Greater City of Medina, um, so. My understanding is that it is explaining those actual, actual boundary marks, which makes it the haram. Wallahu a'lam. But you know, hey, I, you know, if I can, you know, if, if I could get a condo somewhere, even outside by Quba, you know, I will take it. You know, I'll just call an Uber. You know, just, just take a taxi and go further in. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so he's asking, why would they name it Yathrib to begin with? Remember, this city, this oasis town was established maybe a hundred or so years before. So it's not an ancient city, but it's not a new city either. But it is an oasis town, and it's a very fertile area. Why would they name it Yathrib, which means blameworthy or even evil? The answer, and Allah Ta'ala knows best, goes back to a particular naming convention common among the Arabs of that time. The Bedouins and the others would name their children, their sons, Harb or Kelb, War or Dog. And they would name their slaves positive names, Barra. And someone asked them, why do you name your children names like dog but you name your servants nice names and they said it is because to our enemies we want to project this sense of strength and power or we have to go confront the dog or the wolf man 
it was kind of like psych preemptive psychological warfare. <laughs> it's like, okay, we have to go attack that tribe, the tribe of the wolf. Okay, they sound like a pretty formidable foe. I'm not so sure we're ready. <laughs> Whereas if they're named peace and love, okay, let's go. We can do this. So it's kind of like a preemptive psychological warfare. And if you name the city Yathrib, maybe it's for this, it was for the same reason, you know, to be uh, something of a deterrent psychologically. Uh, I haven't heard it expressed that way, but that seems to be a possible reason why they named it that way. Uh, that is definitely the case for some of the names of people that their, their fathers would give them, and that's mentioned explicitly. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't recall any discussion on the, the linguistic route. I mean, there has to be, but... Could be the, one of the classes earlier when you talked about the beginning of the Hadzira, you talked about the remnant of Mecca and things you did mention. Oh, well, there's Becca, too. Yeah. 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 You did mention some of them. Yeah. The older names, you know, the Quran and stuff. Yeah, yeah, these are the descriptors, yeah. He goes to receive the bay'ah. He, he goes and receives the bay'ah in the haram. And then the Sufyani or whatever figure is fighting him uh, goes to try to put a stop to him. And they're swallowed up. But yeah. 